let's dive into God's Word. You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to continue um, through chapter 1. We're not going to finish chapter 1 this morning. We're going to finish it next week. Um, but if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know as we've kind of been moving through the book of Romans, we've covered a few different topics. We've t- covered uh, the topic of gospel identity, gospel unity. Last week we saw in the theme verses of the book of Romans, gospel potency, the power of the gospel. And this morning we are going to look at gospel necessity. Gospel necessity. What makes the gospel so necessary? There are many who, for some reason, believe that God has a split personality. They have come to wrongly believe that there is a difference between the God in the Old Testament and the God in the New Testament. They view the God of the Old Testament as being angry, vengeful, capricious, and bloodthirsty. They look at the the Old Testament, and they've got this vision of God that they do not see in their minds in the New Testament. They see the God of the Old Testament as the God who who destroys uh, the vast majority of the world's population with a flood. They see the God of the Old Testament raining down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. They see the God of the Old Testament punishing the Egyptians and killing the firstborn males in each family They see that same God uh, judging the Egyptians and and bringing the waters of the Red Sea down upon them and drowning them. They see the God of the Old Testament leading God's people out of the wilderness into the land of Canaan and conquering the land by bringing judgment upon the peoples of that land. They even see the God of the Old Testament as the God who would judge His own people, dragging them off into exile, not just once, but twice. They see this God as being, again, filled with wrath and fury, but somehow when they look at the New Testament, they see this God who's very different. He's not the same God. He's a God who's filled, some people believe, with grace and with mercy. They look at Jesus and they say, hey, here's the picture of God that we love. Here's the picture of God that we can rally around. Jesus comes along and He seems so different. He's compassionate and He is loving. But the only way you can come to that conclusion that Jesus is simply loving and compassionate and the God of the New Testament is not a God of wrath and fury is by a superficial reading of the New Testament and a superficial understanding of Jesus. And some who have accurately read and assessed the New Testament have come to this very conclusion that this God is one and the same. In fact, Lord Bertrand Russell, he wrote this treatise called, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in it, listen to what he says. He says, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character. And that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself, he says, feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ, he says, certainly as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment. And one does find repeatedly a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching. 
You do not, for instance, find that attitude in Socrates. You find him quite bland and urbane toward the people who would not listen to him. And it is, to my mind, far more worthy of a sage to take that line than to take the line of indignation. And I think what Lord Bertrand Russell expresses here is 100% true in terms of how he assesses the Jesus of the New Testament. But I also think he expresses the sentiment of many individuals who hear the message of the Bible. You see, to so many people, this idea of a God of wrath, a God who punishes sin, is offensive. But the Bible and Paul for us this morning is going to make it clear that until we understand God's wrath, we cannot actually understand the gospel. It is the very existence of the wrath of God that makes the gospel itself absolutely necessary. Paul, he lays this out for us in verse 18. Listen to what he says. You can follow along. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because He has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul here tells us that the gospel is absolutely necessary, and he gives us two really foundational reasons why that's the case. First, he says this, the gospel is absolutely necessary because sin demands God's wrath. It demands God's wrath. And we see that in verse 18, as Paul gives to us the first negative statement, the first negative thought in the entire book of Romans. And in this section, what he's doing is he's beginning right here a, a prosecution, you can think of it like this in legal terms, of all of humanity. In chapters 1 through the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, what he's doing is he's laying out a case against humanity. He is highlighting for us human rebellion, and thereby he is establishing for us the very reason why God's wrath is necessary. He is going to kind of break it up into two separate lines of thinking. First, he's going to address humanity apart from the Jews. We've seen this in the past a couple of weeks. The passages here before this talk about the Jews and the Gentiles. He's going to right now go after the Gentile world predominantly, primarily, not exclusively, because the Jews often kind of slide into the same kinds of things as the Gentiles. But he's going to show us first how the Gentiles are guilty before God. And then in chapter 2, he's going to go after the Jews and show how they too are guilty before God. And he's going to put all of humanity on the same playing fields.
All of humanity, this is his point, is without excuse before God. And sin demands God's wrath. He says here that God is a God of wrath. It is, I mean, we, we can't change the text, and as uncomfortable as that makes us feel, we have to look at what God is telling us here through His Word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This idea of God's wrath, listen, it has a future component to it, but it is breaking into the very present. God's wrath is revealed in this present moment. We're going to see this next week in very, very clear detail. But just know this. God's wrath is not simply a future reality. It is a present reality. And it's important that we actually understand exactly what this means, the idea of the wrath of God. The rest of the passage will be confusing if we don't get an accurate understanding of the wrath of God. First, let's just break this down like this. It does not mean that God is given to capricious, uncontrolled anger. Okay, when you think of anger, you, you can't think of your kind of anger and my kind of anger, this kind of explosive, irrational at times, uncontrolled anger. God is not like that. His anger is not like that. God is not like a petulant child who throws a temper tantrum when he doesn't get his way or when he's offended. God does not have road rage. God's anger is not whimsical. It is not irrational. It is not a human wrath, which on its best day is a distorted reflection of God's wrath because it is always compromised by the very presence of sin. The word here that Paul uses in the Greek for anger signifies this settled abiding condition. It is a steady anger. But I don't want you to get the wrong idea and the wrong understanding. See, again, God's anger and wrath is not like ours. It is infinitely pure and therefore infinitely greater. The purity of God's wrath speaks to the intensity of God's wrath. It is a pure, steady, right anger. You see, God's wrath is, is secondly, notice this, it's demanded by God's character. I want you to see what Paul is doing here in verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now, we've already heard similar language back in the previous section. We saw that the righteousness of God is being revealed. And so what Paul is doing here is he's reaching back and he's drawing for us a parallel here. The, the, the wrath of God, excuse me, is paralleled with the very righteousness of God, both of them being declared by God, especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These two are counterparts. God's wrath, you can think of it like this, is an expression of God's righteousness, they are two sides of the same coin, in a fallen world, that is. J.I. Packer, I'll put it on the screen, helpfully says it like this, God's wrath is His righteousness reacting against unrighteousness. It is the expression of God's holy, loving displeasure with sin. It is the expression of God's loving of His own glory and His own righteousness. 
We love to talk about a God of love, and, and by the way, we ought to talk about a God of love. But there's a kind of a pendulum that swings back and forth in, in history, and a lot of Christians have swung this pendulum all the way to the, to the left. Let's go this way. This is my left. This is your left here. Of God's love, right? God is a God of love. That's all we want to talk about. That's all we want to sing about. That's all we want to think about. God is a God of love. And this becomes the dominant theme in so many people's gospel message. Listen, listen. You can't understand the love of God without understanding the wrath of God. You don't know how loving God is until you know how angry God is. R.C. Sproul says it like this, a God of love who has no wrath is no God. He is an idol of our own making as much as if we carved him out of stone. And it is because, listen, of God's holiness that he cannot look on iniquity and tolerate evil. He must judge. His character demands that he judge sin. God's wrath is, secondly, listen, demanded by the nature of sin. Not just by his character, but by the very nature of what sin is. And here, what Paul is doing is he is addressing human rebellion comprehensively. Listen to how he says this in verse 18. His wrath, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's how Paul defines sin and human rebellion. He uses two words, and again, this is comprehensive. He's talking about the total depravity of humanity. He defines it as ungodliness and unrighteousness. These two terms are not two distinct realities, but they describe instead the same thing. Human rebellion is described as ungodliness. We think of ungodliness simply in terms of actions and behavior. When we say that somebody is acting ungodly, what we often mean is that they're behaving in a way that does not represent God's character and God's commands. But this term goes far deeper than that. It isn't actually focused primarily on behavior. It's focused on belief. Ungodliness at its core is a lack of reverence of God. The word here that Paul uses is the same word that's used in the New Testament in, in places like Acts chapter 17 and 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, and, and it's used, listen, to describe the object of worship apart from God. So in Acts 17 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's describing, listen, listen, it's describing false worship. It's describing idolatry, ungodliness, listen, is a worship disorder. It is worship that is given to something other than God, someone other than God. That is what he's describing here when he uses this word ungodliness. There is no desire to honor God, to adore God. And he's going to unpack this for us. And, and, and unrighteousness, this term that he uses here, this again, it's, it's found in a refusal to worship God and a desire to worship that which is in the created order. 
It involves a refusal to give God his proper rule over our lives. It is a refusal to acknowledge God as God. Just grasp this idea. What Paul is saying to us here is that the nature of sin is human rebellion, where at its core, God is not prized, God is not esteemed, and God is not glorified. You see, our problem when we think of sin, is that we don't often define sin the way God defines sin. And I, I understand, when we look at a passage like this, we, we can grasp, grasp a bit of the seriousness of sin, but oftentimes when we talk about sin, even as Christians, we kind of soft-pedal sin in our own lives. We soft-pedal it when we describe sin even to unbelievers. Here's why. Because we don't want it to be too offensive. We don't want it to shock people. We don't want to be shocked by it in our own lives. In fact, R.W. Dale says it like this, it is because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. We soft-pedal sin. We we talk about it in terms like this. You know what? It's just a mistake. It was a failure. We have a problem. By the way, all of those things are true, but can you see how that merely scratches the surface of what sin actually is? When sin is rightly defined, we see why it is so serious to God and why it must be, therefore, so serious to us. We must let our understanding of God, His righteousness, and His wrath inform our understanding of sin itself. You say, well, what exactly should my response be? If I understand sin like this, I love what J.C. Ryle says. He says this, the true Christian, listen, hates sin, flees from it, fights against it, considers it his greatest plague, resents the burden of its presence, mourns when he falls under its influence, and longs to be completely delivered from it. Church, if we believe what the Bible says about the wrath of God, we must preach it in the gospel. We must preach sin as sin. It must be a devastating blow to our ego, to our pride. It must be the thing that crushes us. We cannot leave this part of the gospel out when we evangelize. Listen, you must hate sin in your own life. You must detest it. You must fight against it with every fiber of your being because you understand what it actually is to God, how serious it is, that it invokes the wrath of God, and rightly so. But when you preach the gospel, church, listen, we're at a, again, we're at a day and a time and an age when all we want to preach to people is the love of God. Listen, we must preach the bad news before we get to the good news. We must, we must warn people of the wrath to come and the wrath that abides upon them right now as they are apart from Jesus Christ. We have to tell them about it. There is here, listen, there is, if we rightly understand the wrath of God, there is a sense of urgency here. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to hear what God is saying to you. There is a wrath of God that is demanded by his character that you are under right now at this very moment. Your sin demands God's wrath. And secondly, here's what that means. That sinners deserve God's wrath. It's not just that that God's character demands it. 
is we actually deserve it. And again, this, this, this is a staggering thought and a staggering reality, and it is one that offends so many people because we believe deep down that we are good people. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with unbelievers who claim that they are good, that somehow they deserve God's blessing in their life. They deserve to enter into the presence of God upon their death. They deserve it because they've done enough good. They haven't been as bad as other people. But Paul's point is this, that listen, every person, man, woman, and child is deserving of God's wrath. Nobody is off the hook. See, how exactly is this possible? How exactly have we sinned against God and therefore become deserving of His wrath? He says first that sinners deserve God's wrath because we suppress the truth. Did you notice that there? He's explaining this to us. He's telling us exactly why we deserve God. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now here is the universal sin. The idea here of suppression This is the image that you should have in your mind. This is an aggressive striving against the truth. This is not a passive approach to the truth about God. Paul opens our eyes to the fact that all who are without Christ are in the constant process of holding down the truth and therefore are deserving of God's abiding wrath. This suppression of the truth, again, it's not this passive approach. Paul is actually painting the opposite picture. It is willful. It is truth that is willfully buried and pushed down because fallen human beings will not have God in their thinking. You can think of it like a, like a giant coil. Every, every human being is essentially, Paul says, like holding onto a coil, a giant coil, and they're actively, constantly pushing it down. And the reason why so many people are so offended when you tell them about their sin and you tell them about God is because you're getting in their way from holding down the truth actively in their life. They're, they're like, get, get out of here. I don't need, I, I, you're bothering me. You're distracting me. I'm trying to hold this truth down. You see, the fear is that that spring is going to burst up and smack them right in the face. And God says, listen, God says that that active suppression of the truth, here's what God says, listen, church, listen. He says, that infuriates me. Because we as human beings are so determined to hold that truth down. And God says, I, I do not like people stifling and repressing and hindering and incarcerating my truth. The most fundamental basis for human guilt, listen, is suppressing the truth of God. There are no exceptions. You say, well, what about that person who's never heard about God in, in the remote tribe somewhere else on a different continent? What about that person? Are they too guilty before God? The definitive answer of Paul and of the entire Word of God is yes. They are guilty before God because they too are willfully suppressing the truth of God, actively holding it down in their unrighteousness. 
It is true in the darkest Pacific jungle, and it is true in our concrete forest. See, how? How is this possible that that nobody is off the hook? Look at what he says. Again, he, he, he gives us the answers. We don't have to make this stuff up. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is unbelievable. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. If you're a highlighter, if, if this is like something you do, here's what you need to do. You need to take note, and you need to mark this up on your Bible. You just need to make note of this. It is plain to them. Just look at this language. Plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been, listen to this, clearly perceived. Do you see, do you see the emphasis of the word of God here? It's, this is not hidden. This is not muddy for anybody. When God speaks of his revelation of himself to all of humanity, he is not talking about something that's vague or obscure. It is clear. It's so clear and it is so manifest that you can't possibly miss it. That's his point. It's not like you know, God's like a parent. You know, can you imagine parents with your kids? You know, parents, every one of us has a responsibility to teach our kids. And there's, there's a, a point where if, you know, if there's a saying in kind of the ap- academic world, if the student hasn't learned, the teacher hasn't taught. That's true in parenting, isn't it? If your kids aren't learning, then you're probably not teaching. But can you imagine? Can you imagine like you just said, okay, kids, I've got to teach you. I've got to help you grow up. Now, I went to the library and I got all these books. I got a book here on potty training. You should probably start there. I got a book on nutrition, on math, you know, on and on and on. Now, I'm going to leave it right there. Go figure it out. They're like, two. Kids would look at you with utter and total confusion. There's a sense in which some people think that's what God has done. But you see, God doesn't just throw the books on the table. He makes it clear to them. It's like he's opened that up and he's started to read. He's grabbed them by the hand. He's told them everything they need to know. And they take his hand and they slap it away. And his point is that so no one can say on the last day, listen, God, you didn't tell me. God, I can't be responsible. Think think about this. He says it here so that they are without excuse. You see that there? So so, so that at the end of the day, nobody's going to stand before God. Here's here's why. What is the most common excuse you think people are going to try to have before God on that final day? I didn't know, God. Ignorance. They're going to plead ignorance. God, I had no idea that that's what you were trying to tell me. I had no idea that you were real. You you didn't tell me. God has removed that excuse, and he says, I have made it as plain as day. It is crystal clear. It gets worse here. 
You say, what exactly did God make clear? Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. There has never been a time in all of creation, never, not once, where God has not been declaring that he is real, that he is powerful, that he is majestic, that he is creator, that he is all-powerful, that he is holy. There has never, ever been a time in which creation has not screamed forth this truth. Listen to what Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. His invisible attributes clearly seen. Every creature on this planet knows that God exists that God is eternal, that God is immutable, that God is self-existent, which is the very essence of deity. Why? Again, so that man is without excuse. Paul says that the clarity of God's self-disclosure to every human being leaves us without excuse, and that means that we are all deserving of God's wrath. There is no ignorance when it comes to knowing the reality of God. Now, We do not know salvation in creation. We know who God is and aspects of His character, not fully. But we look around and we see, we see that the only explanation for all of this is there must be a Creator who is like this, as Paul explains. It's not just that we suppress His truth, catch this, we also subvert His glory. Paul is simply unpacking this idea of ungodliness and unrighteousness for us. We hold down His truth like it's a, a giant spring that we have to put all of our focus and energy on, but in so doing, we are also subverting His glory. For although they knew God, look at this, they did not, here's the word, honor Him as God. There it is. That's the heart of it all. They did not glorify Him as God. They did not worship Him as God. You see the issue here? This is all about the heart's disposition toward God. This is all about our worship. It's all about God's glory. And they did not give thanks to Him. How fitting, how fitting on Thanksgiving. Do you see what God requires of all humanity? It's that they worship Him and give thanks to Him, the author and the giver and the sustainer of life, the one who gives all good things. The very heart of worship is a heart of gratitude to God. And and let me just say this again as clearly as I can. You see, what's the foundational sin of humanity? Here it is, idolatry. That's the foundational sin. The foundational sin is that we refuse to honor God as God. A refusal to acknowledge what we know to be true. You know, the reality is, in many ways, we honor God, sure. We we honor God the way we want to honor Him. We're going to see that next week. We honor a God of our own choosing, a God of our own making, in a way that we decide is right and fitting, not the way He tells us to honor Him. Paul's going to go after idolatry in full form, but the idols of our day are really our defective theologies. 
defective theologies that replace the biblical concept of God with a concept of God that is far more interesting and far less threatening than the biblical image of God. Uh, I was recently in a meeting with a group of, of men who are leading a Christian institution. And, and they were talking about um, the youth and the next generation and, and trying to, you know, talking about how we're going to reach the next generation. How are we going to, you know, this is constantly the topic, is if we somehow have to reinvent the wheel and, and figure out now how are we going to reach this generation. Look how unique they are. I mean, they're growing up with social media. They're growing up with Netflix. They're growing up just head in the TV or on, on a screen at all times. And you know what they said to me? They said, you know what? Uh, this generation is bored with church. Like, really? You think? You think that is a contemporary problem? And they said, listen, with conviction and authority, I'm not making this up, they said that we cannot reach this generation in traditional ways. This generation needs entertainment. They need a big show. They need big, bright lights, big, bright screens. They need it loud and in your face. They need to be entertained. This is literally what they're saying. Unapologetically, unashamedly, this is what they need. Now, listen, I'm not a Luddite. I have no problem using technology. We use it all the time. But can I just tell you this? We don't believe that anything we do in terms of our technology, we love our tech team, we love the fact that we can do what we do, this saves nobody. Nobody. Church, can I tell you that with conviction and by the authority of scriptures, listen, that what this generation needs is the same thing that every generation needs. It is not some superficial man-made attempts to entertain them into a relationship with God. They need a genuine encounter with the true and living God. They need to come face to face with God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. They need to come face to face with their own sin and rebellion and rejection of God, and they need to be broken and laid out. Nobody has ever been entertained into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody, not one person. And every single person from cover to cover in the Bible who has an encounter with the living God, listen, they are brought to their face. They pass out. They break open before this God, and they repent of their sin, and they turn, and they place their faith in this God, who alone can save them from what they truly deserve, which is the wrath of the very God that they have offended. You can't show me a a single instance in all of God's Word of somebody who encounters the living God and is bored. We don't need greater relevance. We need greater revelation. We need, we need the Word of God. We need God speaking to us by His Spirit, through His Word. That's what this generation needs. That's what you need. That's what I need. We don't come to church to be entertained. We come to church to be transformed by an encounter with the living God. Amen, church? Do you see how he unfolds this here? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And here's, listen to this progression. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The corruption of human reasoning is stated in three ways. Futile thinking, foolish hearts darkened. They became fools. The fool is the one who embraces a lie and thinks that he is wise. 
And what could be more foolish than to reject what you know to be true? The Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith asks this question, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man? What is the goal of all humanity? And here's the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we were created. But here, it's, it's worse. It's not just that they don't worship God. Listen to what they do. Exchange. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged, they replace, they subvert His glory. The essence of idolatry is not that it ends in atheism, church, listen, but that it ends in a swap, a trade, a change of worship. You trade in the glory of the eternal, immutable, holy, majestic, self-existing, omniscient, omnipotent glory of God for the glory of a bird, a totem pole, a piece of wood or stone that you, you sat down and you whittled yourself, and then you cleaned up all of the shavings and threw it in the, the, the trash, and then you set it up, and you feed it, and you pray to it, and you say, help me. Save me! Could anything possibly be more stupid? That's not what we do. We're, we're more sophisticated than that. We use our intellect to chip away at the sovereignty of God, of the, at the righteousness of God, and at the wrath of God. We whittle down God into an image of our own making. We take what only He deserves and we give it to something that deserves nothing, and then we get exactly what we deserve. Wrath. And we have been warned. From cover to cover, we have been warned. We have no excuse and we have no defense. Sin demands God's wrath and sinners deserve God's wrath. How serious is this wrath? Where do we see it most powerfully displayed? Charles Spurgeon says, the most terrible warning to impenitent men in all the world is the death of Christ. Listen to this. For if God spared not his own son, on whom was only laid imputed sin, will he spare sinners whose sins are their own? R.C. Sproul says, it is the cross that reveals the most violent and mysterious outpouring of the wrath of God that we find anywhere in Scripture. You see, the cross is the display of God's hatred of sin and hope for sinners. It is the perfect display of God's anger and His love, His righteousness and wrath. It is the only way that God can remain God and we can be saved. For it is there that God's wrath is both poured out and satisfied. As the only one who deserved to live, willingly takes our place and takes what we deserve so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, church, the gospel isn't an option. It is a necessity. It is a necessity for you and for me, and it is a necessity for the entire world who is dead in their trespasses and sins. Because of yours and my rebellion, without Jesus, we have no excuse and we have no defense. You and I stand guilty and condemned, but the gospel teaches us that by trusting in Jesus, you can be instantly forgiven of everything you need of everything you've done, excuse me, and you can find everything you need. Perfect restoration, complete forgiveness, true life. So that for all eternity, 
you can fulfill the chief end for which you were created, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, um, this morning, with such a weighty topic, we see, Lord, that You have called us to glorify You above all else and to give thanks to You. God, we pray that as we have understood the wrath of God, maybe in in greater ways this morning, and God, we have maybe come face to face with our own sin, our own condition, our own rebellion against You, that God, in Your grace and kindness, You have actually stirred our hearts not to fear You with trepidation, but God, to love and adore You for what You have done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that You would take all the wrath we deserved and that You would raise us to newness of life. For this, O Lord, we say thank You, and we give You praise this morning. We need You, Lord. We need You. You and You alone are all that we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.